Welcome to uh, Easter Sunday. He is risen. Uh, this is the third in our small Easter series, and today we will be looking at the book of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. And if you're looking, uh, if you're looking in the Red Pew Bibles in front of you, you should each have one of these in front of you, uh, probably. And uh, that's on page 1089, the same page uh, that our scripture reading was from. So page 1089. The series we've been doing has been called Eyewitness. It's focused on different people who encounter Jesus uh, around the cross and how they respond to him during his crucifixion. They're eyewitnesses of what happened. The first week we looked at Pilate. He was the Roman governor who... who uh, condemned Jesus, although innocent, to death. He encountered Jesus before the cross. Last week, we looked at two criminals who literally encountered Jesus on the cross. They're dying as criminals with Jesus. One of the criminals, of course, mocks Jesus as a fraud and a lunatic, and the other one recognizes Jesus' innocence and worships him. This week, we've come to another character, who encounters Jesus after the cross. If you aren't familiar with the story of Jesus or or of the Gospels, this might sound a bit odd, perhaps a bit morbid. He encountered Jesus after the cross? After all, no, no one survived Roman crucifixion, especially one as bloody as Jesus's was. He was brutally whipped until he was basically unrecognizable, Both his wrists and his uh, feet were nailed to a beam, and then the weight of his body pulled on the nails for hours. And just to ensure that he was dead, they they stuck, uh, just to ensure he was dead, they thrust a long sword in his side. The only way someone was encountering Jesus after the cross would be for Jesus to rise from the dead. And that's exactly what each gospel account claims that Jesus died and then rose again. He lives, present tense. And in many ways, this is an outrageous claim. I realize that. It was then even as much as it is today. And that brings us to the resurrection story in John 20 that we had read earlier. In John 19, we read that Jesus died and was buried on Friday. That's what we call Good Friday. And in chapter 20, verse 1, on early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, a friend and and follower of Jesus, goes to pay her respects at the tomb. To her surprise, she finds this massive stone that had covered the tomb moved away. And Jesus' body was gone. And her first response is not, oh, look, it's it's been, Jesus has risen from the dead. That's not what she's thinking. She, no, she runs back to the disciples. She finds Peter and John, John the one who wrote this gospel, and she says, someone has removed Jesus from the tomb. He's probably stolen or someone's taken him somewhere. Peter and John run to the tomb and they see the same thing. Jesus is gone. The grave clothes are lying kind of inconspicuously, seeming undisturbed. Then Peter and John return to the disciples and 
most likely they're perplexed and they tell what they've seen. But verse 9 clarifies that none of Jesus' disciples thought or expected that Jesus rose from the dead at this point. They've thought someone's taken him. Mary remained at the tomb and she's crying. You can see why. She cared for Jesus deeply. All her religious hopes had been in Jesus as the Messiah. Those had been dashed a few days ago when when he had been crucified. And now his body had either been stolen or taken away. But at that point, when she's crying, Jesus meets her there. She returns the disciples and tells them, they're all gathered together, and she tells them everything she's seen. It's on that evening, that Sunday evening, that same day that Jesus rose from the dead. Sunday evening, the disciples are gathered together, and and the text is in secret. You can imagine why. The body of Jesus is gone, and the Jewish leaders are probably thinking, we took him. We know we didn't, but we're a little worried. So they're meeting in secret. And you can, and in verse 19, we read that Jesus comes to where they are meeting and shows his hands and his side. They see him. They hear him. They touch him. This is no hallucination, right? But there is one disciple who was missing that evening. His name was Thomas. Let's read in chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Again, 1089. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas this time was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and and put it into my side. Stop doubting, Thomas, and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In verses 24 and 25, we see the doubt of a disillusioned disciple. The doubt of a disillusioned disciple. We know very little about Thomas. He was, he was one of the eyewitnesses, but he was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples who followed him, Jesus, and, and was taught by Jesus. Thomas saw Jesus perform miraculous signs. He saw him befuddled Jewish leaders with wisdom about the Old Testament law and the prophets. We also get a hint that Thomas's outlook is, on life is a bit pessimistic and gloomy from some of the other instances in which he comes up. But more than anything, 
At this moment, Thomas must have been incredibly disillusioned by what had just occurred over the last few weeks. Thomas believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And for a Jewish person, the Messiah conquered. He was a powerful king, a rescuer, a restorer of God's great kingdom. To put it in common terms, he kicked Roman butt. Of course, Thomas heard Jesus talk about suffering, and sure, he had some faint idea that Jesus would suffer in some way, but he certainly did not expect Jesus, the Messiah, to die in abject shame and humiliation. Thomas had staked his life, his identity, his meaning, his hopes, all on Jesus being the Messiah. And they just crumbled in a weekend. And here we are, two days after this horrific event. All the other disciples come to him and say, Thomas, you're never going to believe this. But, but we have seen Jesus. He, he, he's risen. We saw the scars on his hands and feet. We touched the wound in his side where they pierced him. Je- Thomas, Jesus is living. And you can almost imagine how disorienting this would be for Thomas. He, he's just trying to process what life looks like and even means after, after such religious disappointment. And now you're telling me that Jesus has risen from the dead? Perhaps you're here today thinking, oh, well, of course, in the first century, that's like 2,000 years ago, people believed, of course people believed someone could rise from the dead. They believed all kinds of crazy things back then. But read these stories. Read the other historical accounts. It's just as shocking to Thomas as it would be to us. Noah's thinking, oh, yeah, this makes sense. People rise from the dead. That's not going on. So Thomas doubts. And we should sympathize with Thomas. I do. He had just experienced incredible religious disappointment. He just doesn't want to be gullible. He wants to make sure this is the same Jesus he walked and talked with. He wants proof, irrefutable, empirical proof. He wants to see Jesus. He wants to touch Jesus. He wants to hear Jesus. Only then will Thomas believe. Of course, there are ten other disciples, his best mates, the guys he trusts, the men he he would live with and, and would even die with, he said a few chapters earlier. These are men he trusts. And they're all saying their testimony just isn't enough for him. He had to hear, he had to see, he had to touch Jesus for himself. But then we get the declaration of a delighted disciple. The declaration of a delighted disciple in verses 26 through 28. Verse 26 tells us that a week goes by. Okay, so so they, the, the disciples, minus G, Thomas, see Jesus on the resurrection Sunday. And they tell him that, and then a week goes by. Thomas still has not encountered the resurrected Christ. And the disciples, next Sunday, gather once again in someone's house. And this time, Thomas is present. During this meeting, Jesus enters the room and stands among them once again. 
He gives them a, a common greeting. Shalom. It's kind of like uh, like how many of our Persian friends will say salam when they see you. It means peace be with you. He, he, he realizes Jesus knows that this sight might be frightening to them and just peace. It's okay. It's okay. It's just it's me. But Jesus knows Thomas's heart. He, he knows he's been overwhelmed with doubt. And so he looks at Thomas and says, verse 26, Thomas, put your finger here. See my, my hands. Reach out. Touch your hand and, and put it on into my side. Stop doubting and believe. The freshly scarred hands of Jesus and the freshly scarred feet and the wound in his side where the Roman soldiers had thrust the, the sword. The familiar voice of Jesus all demonstrated to Thomas that this was the resurrected Jesus. There was no doubt in his mind. We don't even know if Thomas even reached out to touch Jesus with his hands, but we do know that Thomas responds with sheer delight joy. He worships Jesus. He declares Jesus, my Lord and my God. This is the climactic point of the book of John, the whole book. This is the climax. It's an astonishing confession. It's not astonishing that he would call him the Messiah. Jesus had been called the Messiah throughout the whole book. That That's understandable. But Thomas goes further. He calls him my Lord and my God. It's the clearest confession of Jesus' divine identity, divine nature in the whole Bible. This confession is so bold and astonishing that many people still try to discredit it or explain it away today. If you're going to go down in the Sheffield city center, I do this often if I'm meeting someone. Get off the train, you kind of walk right down the, the middle strip there, and you'll see people, a religious group, handing out literature, don't you? I'm not sure if you've, if you've done this. They, uh, they're from the, the Church of the Latter-day Saints. They, you know them as Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't believe Jesus is God, and so they explain Thomas's words as merely an ecstatic exclamation of joy. Something like, my Lord, oh my God! Now, although you might hear, oh my God, as kind of a meaningless expression if you're having lunch in the office, perhaps if you're doing some shopping over at Meadow Hall, let me tell you, one thing is for certain, you would not hear those words come from a devout Jew in the first century. Using the name of God for, for the first century Jew was a sacred thing. It was considered blasphemy to use it without referring to God himself. So it's absurd to try to explain this away by saying, oh, he's just kind of exclaiming, oh my God, this is amazing. It makes no sense to the context. The second difficulty with this interpretation is that Jesus accepts the title. In fact, Jesus calls people blessed who make the same confession. If Thomas was shouting a blasphemous phrase, I don't think Jesus would be giving his blessing to that. But perhaps... Thomas is calling Jesus God, and he's just mistaken. Maybe he's just wrong. You know, in other places in the New Testament, individuals actually do overstep themselves and begin worshiping the apostles after they perform some kind of miracle. 
This happened to Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14. The people of Lystra started saying, you're, you're like the gods. This happened to Peter in Acts 2. They started worshiping him. But you know what happened immediately when this happened? Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, Peter in Acts 2, they say, stop worshiping me. I'm not a god. I'm just a man like you. Worship Jesus. Thomas isn't mistaken. Jesus understands what Thomas is saying and affirms what Thomas is saying. But there is one question we should ask of the text. Why does Thomas make such a claim at this point? One scholar, D.A. Carson, notes, we expect him to say something like, when he sees the risen Jesus, this is incredible. You're alive. I was wrong. I'm sorry. You are the true Messiah. But he says, you are not only my Lord, you are my God. It's the highest claim in the whole New Testament. It's the clearest one. What could possibly prompt him to make a claim like this at this moment? Carson suggests this explanation. There's been a week between Thomas hearing the news about Jesus, that he had risen from the dead, and his actual encounter with Jesus. And in this week, Thomas must be processing what it would mean if his best mates were right. I know these men, they seem certain, but this is ridiculous. I will not be duped again. But, but what, if it, what, it, what would it mean if he, he really did rise from the dead? What, what would that mean for me? You can imagine in this processing, the mental wrestling, the possibility of Jesus' resurrection, he reflected perhaps more deeply on Jesus' very teaching. Just a week earlier, Jesus was speaking to Philip and to Thomas when Philip asked him, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said to Philip and Thomas, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He may have recalled the time where Jesus healed a paralyzed man. And Jesus said to that man, your sins are forgiven, Matthew 2, 9, 2. But but wait, time out. Only God can forgive sins. What, What is he saying? Perhaps he recalled Jesus telling all the disciples that Jesus had authority to judge the world so that, chapter 5, verse 23, so that all may honor, worship the Son just as they honor, worship father of course thomas was present with jesus just a week before when jesus went to the temple the same week of his crucifixion the temple was you have to you have to understand what the temple is for, for thomas for the jewish people the temple is the incarnation of god for the people of israel it's god with us in the old testament okay It's the place where God is present with his people. In the temple, you can have fellowship with God. You can have communion with God. In the temple, you can have forgiveness of sins by sacrifice. But Jesus shows up and just a week earlier says to all the people there, destroy this temple and in three days, I will rise it up again. At the time, the disciples don't get it. But you wonder if Thomas is now reflecting. Could he possibly be referring to himself? Is Jesus saying that he is the temple, the 
presence of God, the one who can forgive sins? It's not too hard to conclude that in reflection, Tom, Thomas came to believe if Jesus really rose from the dead, he is none other than God in the flesh, because you cannot kill God off. So when he meets the risen Christ, he declares, you are my Lord and you are my God. And the author of the gospel, of Tom, uh, the gospel here uses Thomas dec- Thomas's declaration as the bookend of his entire book. You know what bookends are? You have a bunch of books in the middle. You want them to stay straight, so you put a book on. The, well, you put a bookend on this side and a bookend on that side. Well, that's what John is doing with this phrase. John one one bookend one. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Bookend at the end. Thomas, my Lord. My God. I'm not sure what you, some of you believe about Jesus right now or what some of you have believed about Jesus in the past. But one thing is certain. The gospel accounts, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, provide only one explanation of the identity of Jesus. He is God in the human flesh. He is distinct from the Father. The Word was with God. But he shares the same identity, the same nature as God the Father. The Word was God. Some of you have come from a background in Islam. Perhaps some of you have dabbled in Latter-day Saints, Jehovah's Witnesses, or perhaps you've dabbled in Mormonism. But let me tell you, all of those have different views of who Jesus is. But the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the historical record that has been passed down to us, leaves you no option but to worship him as God. Consider this. To accept worship as God when you are not God is ultimate blasphemy. It's the height of deception. It's evil. It's what cult leaders do. Do you think, if you believe in the resurrection, do you think that God the Father would have raised Jesus from the dead if he falsely accepted to worship as God, even though he wasn't? Would he have raised a man like that? Listen, if you're going to make sense of the biblical accounts about Jesus and the historical accounts about Jesus, you must come to grips that Jesus himself identified and his first apostles believed him to be God. Okay, but why is this story here? Why does it matter to John? He includes it for some reason. I mean, he's been thinking about this for years. Why should it, and why should it matter to us even more? In verse 29, Jesus responds to Thomas like this. Read with me. Because you have seen me, you have believed Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What's going on here? Jesus realizes that Thomas, because of his proximity to Jesus and the unique time in which he lived, 
he has an opportunity that few others will ever have. He indeed has the opportunity to see, to hear, to touch physical Jesus, the risen Christ. But Jesus also recognizes that he must return to the Father in just a few days, where he's going to rule and reign from the Father's hand, so he won't be uniquely in his body in this earth. This means that people, in fact, all future generations, will not have the same opportunity to see Jesus like Thomas did. If they will be blessed by God, that means if they will have God's favor, if they'll receive God's salvation, then those people, those future generations, must believe on the basis of the apostles' testimony. The the word of God, these gospel accounts. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. The testimony of the apostles just wasn't good enough for Thomas. There, There is a potential pitfall in explaining this text. I've heard this passage explained this way. Thomas needs evidence. He needs proof to believe in Jesus. But real faith is believing without any evidence. As if faith without evidence is better than faith based on evidence. That's ridiculous. The faith that Jesus calls you to is not a belief in fairies or fiction. The person of faith does not stick his head in the stand when historical facts come to light. No. Our faith in Jesus does not come from what is is seen, but from what was seen. What was attested by the apostles and others. And then recorded for us in the word of God. Our faith is grounded in testimony. Eyewitnesses. Romans 10, Paul says, our faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So let me pause at this moment to challenge you in your search for truth. I hope you desire to know truth, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. I've encountered a number of people who have said to me over the years, Luke, I only believe things that are empirically proven. Well, that's a silly statement, right? After all, you can't empirically prove most things you take for granted in life. I can't even empirically prove that I exist. Have you ever watched The Matrix? My whole life could be some simulated virtual reality, and I would have no way of empirically proving that I exist or that I'm not in that virtual simulated reality. But more practically, our speaker a few weeks ago, Bobby Jameson, mentioned this. We operate day by day believing by believing some things to be true and other things to be not true, not based on irrefutable proof, but on reasonable trust and faith in people's word, in their testimony. If you go to the doctor with stomach pain... They do a scan and say, listen, brother, this is, ter- this is tragic, but you have a tumor. And we need to operate in on, it, on it immediately. You probably believe them. Perhaps you want a second opinion, but if the second opinion confirms, you really believe them. In fact, you believe them so much that you are willing to bank your whole life on their diagnosis. And although they might give you some scant evidence, you believe them based on their testimony, their word. 
You probably don't say, let me see that machine. How does it work anyway? Let me figure this out. Do you even know what a tumor looks like? You believe them because of their credentials as doctors. You believe them based, in some sense, on their testimony, on their word. You know, I'm I'm an American. I'm sure my accent gives me away. Born out of revolution, I guess you might say. I believe in the... We won't make any judgments on that. We'll just say I am where I am, by the grace of God. I believe in the the late 18th century, there was unrest between Great Britain and the American colonies. And then a war ensued where the American colonies united and fought for independence. I believe that happened. I'm making no judgment on whether it was good or bad or whatever it was, but I believe that happened, and I believe most of you think that happened as well. But I don't have video footage of it. I'd be skeptical if you said you did. I haven't talked to any people from the American Revolution, 1776-ish. I'd be very skeptical if you said you did. We understand historical truths based on witnesses, on testimony, on reliable documents. The last few verses tell us this is why John was written or John had written a detailed account of Jesus' life, and specifically why he included this account of Thomas doubting the resurrection. Verses 30 and 31, read with me. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, and those are not recorded in this book. But these signs, John is writing a book of signs is what he says in the beginning, These signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is one of the last eyewitnesses alive when he writes this book. He writes it at the very end of his life. Most scholars believe it's written around 80 or 90 A.D., so this is a good 60 years after the the death of Jesus. And the first readers of this book almost certainly did not meet the resurrected Jesus, the people for whom he's writing this account. And no future generation will either. So John puts together, he writes details, he, he reflects over 60 years of thinking about Jesus and all that he had done. And he writes down a number of signs, miraculous signs that Jesus performed so that future generations could know and believe in Jesus. The resurrection, though, of Jesus is the ultimate sign upon which Christianity stands or falls. It all hangs on this. John includes the story of Thomas struggling with doubt, not wanting to be gullible, understandably scared of being duped, as another sympathetic witness to the resurrected Christ. And John's purpose in writing this is that we would also believe in Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, although we have not seen him. But even more, he wants you to believe this testimony. He wants you to believe the testimony of all the apostles. That's why he's putting together this book. That's what he says in verse 30 and 31. I can hear a potential objection. You might say something to me like this. Luke, you're right. I do believe a team of doctors, if they scanned my stomach and told me I had a tumor. 
Of course, I believe historical documents that, and historians that tell us about the war for American independence. I get that. But, but that's because we know generally that they are trustworthy. They aren't trying to gain anything by convincing us of this. This is why we have centralized regulators for pharmaceutical companies, because they have so much to gain if we buy their products. So we, we kind of want some regulators kind of looking over their shoulders saying, are they really giving us what they tell us they're giving us? So how do we know whether these 12 Jewish disciples, these apostles, are trustworthy? Well, I can't offer you irrefutable proof. Quite frankly, you can't find irrefutable proof for anything you're going to believe in this world. Okay? But let's start with the Apostle Paul. Only 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion, Paul says in a public document that there were hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. He even suggests that these people are still alive and you should even go, you can talk to these people and confirm it. Hundreds. But, but, what if, but what if this is all made up by the disciples? At a later time, in order to support their newfound religion, kind of get them some power. Well, if a first century Jew was going to make up a resurrection story, the last thing they would do is make the first eyewitnesses of the cross female. In the first century Judaism and in Roman courts, I hate, I hate to say this, but women couldn't even give testimony in court. It wasn't taken. They weren't trusted. It wasn't valued. If you are going to make up a fictional account of Jesus' resurrection, trust me, you wouldn't help your cause by making women in every account the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Historians have always talked about this as uh, an element that shows its credibility, its, its authenticity. Additionally, if, if the resurrection is just a big hoax then it hardly explains the responses of Jesus' skeptics. Now, I know you might be thinking, okay, his disciples, they had some vested interest in this. But what about the skeptics of Jesus? Take, for example, James, half-brother of Jesus. Okay, throughout the gospel, James, and and from the other historical accounts, James is antagonistic towards his brother, thinks his brother's a bit loony, is a bit embarrassed by his brother, wants to distance himself from him. And then all we know next is that 20 years later, he shows up as one of the apostles of the church, proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, you have to, right, we're, we're making some leaps here, right? But you have to ask, if he doesn't believe, if he thinks his, his brother's a lunatic while he's alive, dies, is crucified, doesn't raise from the dead, what would convince him then to give his whole life to announcing that his brother had risen from the dead. Same thing with Paul. Paul's dramatic conversion from, was he was an enemy to Jesus. And of course, he had this amazing experience with the risen Christ, but Jesus rose, but Paul goes from his whole identity being against Christians, against the risen Christ, persecuting them, to telling loads of people that there's hundreds of eyewitnesses about Jesus' resurrection. And if you don't believe me, you can go talk to them. What explains that? He had no vested interest in this. 
But even Jesus' disciples did not initially think or expect Jesus would rise from the dead. The disciples are not naturally inclined to believe resurrection stories any more than we are. Thomas wouldn't even take the word of his friends when they had said they had all seen it together. Can we easily explain how all of Jesus' disciples spent the rest of their lives in ministries, giving up their lives, being persecuted, even to death, for something they knew was a great big hoax? Of course it's possible. Absolutely, it's possible. But I think it actually takes a greater faith commitment to believe the alternative explanation to Jesus' resurrection. You may have heard of an American figure named Chuck Colson. He served in the administration for not a very popular American president named President Nixon. And he was deeply involved in what was known as the Watergate scandal. It's the only scandal to ever impeach, to remove an American president. Colson went to prison for his involvement in this, devastated. And his prison, in prison, he became a well-known Christian. I want to read an intriguing reflection on the resurrection from Colson years later. I know the resurrection is a fact, says Colson. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten. Everyone was tortured, stoned, and put in prison because of this claim. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep the lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Impossible. John's writing this so that you will believe and not merely intellectually agree about who Jesus is and what he's done, but worship him. He didn't call him Lord and God. He called him my Lord, my God. John's writing so that you might be blessed by God, that you might have his favor, and that you would share in the resurrection life of Jesus. Resurrection life is only for worshipers of Jesus. And part of worshiping Jesus is believing who he claimed to be and trusting in what he has done for sinners. If you're anything like me, every now and then you're, you're reminded afresh of your absolute inability to be good, to be just, to be consistently kind and holy and pure, The Bible teaches us that that's because you and I are dead in our sins. It's the language it uses. We desperately need life. We need hope. We need a better future. And that's precisely what Jesus is doing, when he, what God is doing when he 
rescues Jesus and raises him from the dead. He is securing our future life with Jesus. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the first fruits, is the first one to pop up in harvest. So when Jesus rises, it's like a down payment that all those in Christ will rise from the dead to death, will not have the final say for those who are in Christ. Because you have a resurrection life flowing through your veins. He accomplishes victory over death and sin for us. John's charge for you is believe that and submit to it. Let's pray.